everything we have to fear is in war. Fear there is no substitute for victory. Let us never negotiate out of fear. We stand undivided, forever united, fighting hand in hand for the liberty we burn, for glory and honor for our sons and daughters. Never mindful of the lessons we've learned. Let the torch of freedom burn. Welcome to the intersection of faith and politics. This is Wall Builders Live with David Barton and Rick Green. Thank you so much for joining us today. Visit online at wallbuilders.com and wallbuilderslive.com. You can also email us your questions. Radio at wallbuilders.com is the easiest way to do that. Just send in your questions, or maybe you got a topic you would like us to cover here on Wall Builders Live. We're constantly looking at things from both a biblical and a historical point of view. And David and I had the chance to do that uh, for an extended period of time together in a program we recently put together called Constitution Alive with David Barton and Rick Green. This was a chance for us to walk through the Constitution and say, look, this document is not dead. Yeah, it was more than 200 years ago, but the principles they put in place are still alive today. They're still applicable today. And if we're going to restore our constitutional republic, we've got to realize that our Constitution still applies. If we want to make a change in it, fine. Article 5 gives us the ability to do that. It should not be done by five out of the nine justices on a whim based on how they feel. It should be done in the constitutional way laid out there in Article 5 of the Constitution. But frankly, folks, the principles put in place by our founding fathers, they produced the most successful nation in the history of the world. This formula works. This secret sauce for how a nation should operate absolutely produced incredible results. And if we want to keep those results, if we want to remain free, if we want our children and grandchildren to enjoy freedom and, and prosperity, then we better restore those constitutional principles. And the only way to do that is for us, we the people, the citizens, to learn what the Constitution says, to learn what the founders intended, what that original intent of the Constitution was, and then learn how to protect and preserve it, how to defend it, how to, how to actually stand up for those principles. And that's what David and I do in Constitutional Live. Uh, it's a 12-hour a program, so there's no way we can squeeze it all into today's radio program, but we encourage you to check it out. You can find out more at constitutionallive.com. We're going to bring it to you here on Wobblers Live. We've shared a couple of the sections of that entire program over the last month or two. And this week, we're sharing a new section. We're sharing Section 6, which is on the presidency. Uh, we wanted to point out from the original document what are the proper powers of the of the presidency and what what can we do to get the presidency into its proper place and and uh, and make sure that it's done constitutionally so today we're picking up where we left off yesterday this is going to take four programs for us to share section six out of constitutional live yesterday was part one today part two and we'll get part three and part four over the next couple of days so let's pick up right where we left off yesterday this is david barton and rick green on constitutional live John Jay, exactly. First Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, one of those authors of the Federalist Papers. And here's the quote that drove everything we did last night, and it will again tonight, 
as well. He said every member of the state, so that's all of us, ought diligently to read and to study. Again, remind, remember that what we talked about was the study part means we're going to crack open the minds of the founding fathers. We're going to get inside there and find out what were they thinking, what did they intend, what were these guys actually trying to do with the words they put into the Declaration and the Constitution. So read and study the Constitution, and then teach the rising generation to be free. I love that phrase, that, that, that idea of passing the torch of freedom to the next generation, making sure that they get it as well. It's not enough for us to study it. We've got to pass it intact to the next generation. By knowing their rights, they'll sooner perceive when they've been violated and be the better prepared to defend and assert them. So our purpose is to know our rights, know what these guys were putting in place for us, and then know how we're to constitutionally, properly defend and assert them. That will drive everything that we do. And so we spent a little time last night talking about the seeds of liberty, what these guys in this room actually put into those documents that caused us to be the most successful nation in history. I told you last night, coming in here reminds me of National Treasures and, and Nicolas Cage coming in here and finding the, the glasses and the secret message on the back of the Declaration. And obviously we're not going to have anything like that happen, but we are going to be reminded and restore that message on the front side of the Declaration and the Constitution. Those words given to the world really defining our secret sauce, our formula for the future of our nation. And it worked incredibly well. The seeds that they planted gave us the most successful nation ever. We talked, or at least the, the kids came up and explained those four principles out of the Declaration. The idea that there are truths, there are concepts of right and wrong, that these guys were willing to pledge their lives, fortunes, and sacred honor. They wouldn't do that for just anything. They did it because they believed in right and wrong, moral absolutes, and a set of values, a set of ideas that was worth fighting and dying for. And I mentioned last night that quote from George Washington. It comes from this speech right here. It's his farewell address. This is actually a, a 1796 printing of that address. It's an old, old book. And I want to just read directly out of the book for you if I can. It's tough, that old English and the way they did the S's and all that. But let's see if I can get it right for you. He said, of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert these great pillars of human happiness. The firmest props of the duties of men and citizens, the mere politician, equally with the pious man, ought to respect and cherish them. A volume could not trace all their connections with private and public felicity. This is David Barton with another moment from America's history. Revisions today often assert that our founding fathers were atheists or agnostics or deists. This charge is not new. In fact, Patrick Henry was even called a deist in his lifetime. Clearly, no one could question his patriotism, but Henry was hurt that they would question his Christianity. Against the charge that he was a deist, Patrick Henry thundered, Deism with me is but another name for vice and depravity. I hear it is said by the deist that I am one of their number, and indeed, that some good people think I am no Christian. This thought gives me much more pain than being called a traitor. Being a Christian is a character which I prize far above all this world has or can boast. Patrick Henry was quick to refute the charge of deism and to declare his open belief as a Christian. 
For more information on God's hand in American history, contact Wall Builders at 1-800-8-REBUILD. He was saying that religion and morality were connected to both our private happiness and our public happiness. For our nation to be successful, it was connected to that. Let it be firmly asked, where is the security for property, for reputation, for life, if the sense of religious obligation desert the oaths, which are the instruments of investigation in courts of justice? He's saying if you don't have that that private expectation that I'm going to be held accountable to a higher being, then when you take an oath in court, for instance, you got no reason to tell the truth. Why would you tell the truth if nobody else there would know? That oath means nothing without that belief in God, without that belief that there's somebody that's going to hold me accountable outside of just this group in the room. So he goes on to talk about the importance in religion and education. I just think it's so neat to bring these guys, bring their actual words from over 200 years ago and be reminded of what they gave us. We also talked about the fact that they did believe that there was a higher being, that that's the source of our freedom, that we don't give it to each other, that we don't get it from government. It comes from God, and therefore government can't take it away. We can't take it from each other. Very important concept. And then we talked about the consent of the governed, the idea that the only just power of government comes from us. It comes from you. It comes from me. We've got to be engaged giving or refusing that consent. And lastly, uh, Rhett talked about the pursuit of happiness, that free enterprise system that's so important to our system of government. Then we went into kind of stepping back and saying, what's the 30,000 feet view? And you remember how quickly we, we flew through the entire Constitution just to get a big picture of what it's all about. We covered the seven articles. We covered the 27 amendments. And we just flew all, through all of them, skipped over the Bill of Rights, which we'll get to tonight. But it gave us a big picture. And then we zoomed in in the last part of our class to the enumerated powers of Congress, what the dues of Congress actually are. And we found those in Article One. Section 8, and spend our time on Article 1, Section 8, to identify those important dues of Congress, those enumerated powers. Tonight, what we want to do is we want to dive in now to Article 2. We want to step in and see what was the executive branch designed to do? What's the proper function of the presidency in our nation? And we're not going to be able to cover every little thing in our quick start guide, so I've tried to pick out some of the hot topics, if you will, or the things that have been in the news lately and the things that we're most concerned about with regard to the executive branch. So we're going to jump into the presidency and a lot of things we could talk about. Not going to go through much of the details in terms of two terms and, and, and uh, you know, a lot of the, the, the age requirements and that sort of thing. I want to jump right into the Electoral College first because this is an idea that, that really encapsulated what these men thought was important, as we said last night, for our special form of a republic, for our kind of federalism. We wanted representation at the federal level for the people and for the states. And that's why the House was elected by the people and the Senate by the state legislatures until we changed that with the 17th. But the Electoral College was still a way for both the people to have a voice and the states to have a voice. You and I, we get to vote for president, but then our vote is cast with our state. So we get our individual vote within our state, and then our state casts its votes together within the Electoral College. So here's a couple of maps that give you an idea of that. The 2004 election, you see the red states and blue states. That's a breakdown of how the states voted for president. Then the 2008 results. That was actually the first time, by the way, that we had a state split their vote. Uh, it was Nebraska. You had actually one district in, in Nebraska. Maine and Nebraska are the only ones that have it in their 
in their, uh, their state requirements for how they choose their electors, they can actually split their vote. But this was the first time that it happened. One, one district actually went to President Obama and the, all, the, all four of the other uh, delegates for Nebraska went to uh, John McCain. But, but what these guys did, when they gathered in here, they really had a hard time initially deciding how they wanted to set up the presidency. Uh, they, they, they looked at a lot of different options. They actually had a committee of 11 guys that debated, okay, should we have, for instance, the Congress choose the president, sort of a parliamentary system like a, a lot of nations in Europe. They said, no, that's a bad idea because we've seen what happens, and you, then you kind of hold the, um, the, the, the president is held to just those folks that elected him out of Congress. He kind of feels like he's beholden to those guys, and they get special favors back and forth. They just didn't like that idea. So they said, well, how about direct election by the people? And they said, no, we don't like that idea because you'll have the most populated areas outvoting the more rural areas, and you'll have regions of the nation um, going against other regions of the nation. They said, well, why don't we have the states choose? You just have 13 votes and the states choose. They said, no, same problem. You got certain regions of the, of the nation or you'll have the small states ganging up against the big states. It just won't work. So they came up with a brilliant idea, the Electoral College. They combined all three of those things. They said, actually, what we'll do is we'll let the people have a voice. Then it'll be within the states. And if no one wins the majority of the Electoral College, then it goes to Congress and Congress gets to decide at that point, which has actually happened before. It happened with John Quincy Adams, son of John Adams, who was in here uh, for the declaration. But here's what they really, the, the, the concept behind the compromise that they made with those three things. They said, we want two things to occur. We believe that our executive, our president, should, should have two things. That, that a, a president should have a sufficient vote of the people, not necessarily the, the, the majority of individual votes, but a sufficient vote, meaning real close, if not the most, and also a sufficient distribution of that vote. So not just have a lot of votes, but have those votes spread across the nation. And that's how the Electoral College sort of encompasses those two requirements. And probably the closest thing to that that we've seen in our, our lifetime anyway was, of course, the 2000 race, where you had two candidates that got very, very close on the popular vote, on the number of individual votes, with Al Gore edging out George Bush on the number of votes but they both had a sufficient number of votes. Bush had more of a distribution of votes. If you just look at the map there with the red and the blue, clearly his vote was distributed more across the nation, so he edged out just barely in the Electoral College. That's not the first time. We've had four times where the president lost the popular vote but won the Electoral College or was chosen by Congress. So this balance that they gave has actually served us really well. The Electoral College has been a, a great tool for us as a nation. And I like the way Benjamin Rush describes why they thought it was so important not to have just a popular vote in terms of the, uh, your, your big cities being the ones to choose. Because think about it, I mean, if you had just a popular vote and not an Electoral College, who's going to be the major deciders for who's going to be president? Big, uh, well, your big cities, even in the state. So you're going to have Houston and, and, and Philadelphia and, and Los Angeles and New York, and, and that's going to be where the vast majority, that's the only places the president's going to campaign. Hey 
guys, we want to let you know about a new resource we have at Wall Builders called The American Story. For so many years, people have asked us to do a history book to help tell more of the story that's just not known or not told today. And we would say very providentially in the midst of all of the new attacks coming out against America, whether it be from things like the 1619 Project that say America is evil and everything in America was built off slavery, which is certainly not true, or things like even the Black Lives Matter movement, the organization itself, not, not the statement Black Lives Matter, but the organization that says we're against everything that America was built on and this is part of the Marxist ideology. There's so many things attacking America. Well, is America worth defending? Well, what is the true story of America? We actually have written and told that story, starting with Christopher Columbus, going roughly through Abraham Lincoln. We tell the story of America, not as the story of a perfect nation or a perfect people, but the story of how God used these imperfect people and did great things through this nation. It's a story you want to check out. Wallbuilders.com, the American story. Your big cities, and that's going to be where your presidential elections really take place. Here's what Benjamin Rush, now, now Rush was a, a great founding father. He's one of the guys that sat here and gave us our Declaration of Independence. He was a medical doctor, trained about 2,000 doctors, just an incredible guy, real renaissance man, did a lot of amazing things. But I love the way he says this, and you'll just have to forgive the description that he uses. He's a medical doctor, all right, and you'll recognize why I'm saying that in a second. He said, I view great cities as pestilential to the morals, the health, and the liberties of man. This is in a letter to Thomas Jefferson. He tells Jefferson, he says, I agree with you in your opinion of cities. Cowper the poet very happily expresses our ideas of them compared with the country. God made the country, man made the cities. <laughs> I consider them in the same light that I do abscesses on the human body as reservoirs of all the impurities of the community. <laughs> you know, I mean, when you think about that, now I'm a country boy, so I get a good kick out of that, all right? But even if you're a city boy, all right, think about it. What he's saying is, remember, these guys were really into understanding the nature of man, and they understood the depravity of man, that just the nature of man, they're going to do bad things. And if you have a, a lot of people congregated together, you're going to get more bad things. It's just the nature of man. So they said, we don't want those great cities to be making the decision. We want it to be spread all across the nation. So now, though, there's a movement to reverse what these guys did. It's called the National Popular Vote Movement. And what they're doing is they're using this Article 2, Section 1 language. And you can actually turn to that in page 18 of your Constitution Made Easy. And, and what they're doing is they're saying, look, it, it says that any state can, can choose their electors any way that they want. And you see the language there. Each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors and goes on to describe. And, and that's true. The, the state gets to choose how they're going to choose the electors. I cannot possibly imagine that these men would have ever thought that the choice that a state would make would be to not choose. Because that's what national popular vote does. If a state adopts national popular vote, what, it, what they say is, no matter what the people in our state choose, if another candidate gets the popular vote in the nation, our electoral college votes go to that person. So in other words, if you think back to that map that I showed earlier, if you, if you take my home state of, of Texas in the, in the 2008 election, went for McCain. But if we had adopted national popular vote, our electoral college votes would have gone to Obama. You, you think of a state like California that clearly supported President Obama. Their electoral college, had, had McCain gotten the popular vote, their electoral college votes would have been taken away from Obama and given to McCain. So it really is, I think, a very bad idea that's going to become very unpopular once it actually kicks in, if it kicks in. 
And, and it will kick in once enough states adopt this law that the total of the states that have adopted it is more than 270, because that's the magic number in the Electoral College to win the presidency. So let's look at why they're doing it. This is a, an assemblyman up in, in New York. This is actually a Republican assemblyman. He said the Electoral College is an 18th century anachronism that no longer serves the goals of a pure democracy. Hmm, do we want a pure democracy? Anybody in here want a pure democracy? Do you think any of these guys wanted a pure democracy? Absolutely not. They were incredibly outspoken against a pure democracy. In fact, that phrase is used by John Witherspoon. I mean, Witherspoon sat here and was a very influential man on the Founding Fathers, gave us the Declaration of Independence, trained a lot of these guys. Witherspoon said this about pure democracy. Pure democracy cannot subsist long, nor be carried far into the Department of State. It is very subject to comprising the madness of popular rage. The madness of popular rage. Here's John Adams. Remember, democracy never lasts long. It soon wastes, exhausts, and murders itself. There never was a democracy yet that did not commit suicide. And then back to Benjamin Rush. Benjamin Rush says it best. He says, a simple democracy is one of the greatest of evils. A democracy is a mobocracy. They didn't want a democracy. It drives me nuts when a lot of my friends in the political realm talk about we're for democracy, we want democracy. That word, certainly as understood by these guys, was very different from a republic. They did not want a democracy. In fact, Article 4, Section 4 of our Constitution guarantees we're going to be a republic and that every state is going to be guaranteed to be a republic. Take a look at that slide there. That's the states that have already adopted national popular vote. If you add up their Electoral College votes, we're halfway there to getting rid of the Electoral College. That's 132, and it's probably going to be adopted by New York. It's, there's several states that are seriously considering it right now. I personally think the momentum is against what I prefer, which is what these guys prefer, the Electoral College. National popular vote is gaining steam in the nation. And the reason, if you think about it, it's, it's, it's actually the arguments for them are quite simple. Shouldn't the person with the most votes win? And that sounds great if you don't understand federalism, if you don't understand a republic, if you don't understand the idea of the states having a voice and all the things we just talked about with the founders. Unfortunately, in one line you can tell their side of the story. How long did it take me to go through and explain the, va the value of having an electoral college? So it's harder for us. That's why we have to educate people about what these guys were thinking, what the purpose of the electoral college was, and why it's been good for us as a nation. I, I, I do think we can turn the tide on this. I think it's something that just requires education. The fact that you know, we've had 5,000 people go through this class already. Uh, the, I think if, if we get enough people studying the Constitution, studying the or, original ideas, we can win that battle, but it's going to take a lot of work. You guys are from all over the country. I challenge you to go home to your state, find out if there's a bill being considered in the legislature to abolish the Electoral College or adopt the national popular vote and lobby against it. I encourage you to do that and, and protect the constitutional idea that these guys put into our original document. So that's the Electoral College. Have you ever wanted to learn more about the United States Constitution but just felt like, man, the classes are boring, or it's just that old language from 200 years ago, or I don't know where to start? People want to know, but it gets frustrating because you don't know where to look for truth about the Constitution either. Well, we've got a special program for you available now called Constitution Alive with David Barton and Rick Green, and it's actually a teaching done on the Constitution at Independence Hall in the very room where the Constitution was framed. 
We take you both to Philadelphia, the Cradle of Liberty and Independence Hall, and to the Wall Builders Library, where David Barton brings the history to life to teach the original intent of our founding fathers. We call it the Quick Start Guide to the Constitution because in just a few hours through these videos, you will learn the Citizen's Guide to America's Constitution. You'll learn what you need to do to help save our constitutional republic. It's fun, it's entertaining, and it's going to inspire you to do your part to preserve freedom for future generations. It's called Constitution Alive with David Barton and Rick Green. You can find out more information on our website now at wallbuilders.com. You guys got any question on that one before I move on to the next part of the presidency? This is from uh, Sabrina in Michigan. It's more of a general question. But she asks, well, with the emphasis on the oath of office is huge for the founders, how do we emphasize the importance of the oath of office for the legislature, presidential, and judiciary? How do we enforce or encourage enforcement? Mm, great question. So question for Michigan was, how, if, if the oath of office was so important to these guys and they talked about the meaning behind it and why it meant that you were accountable to someone besides those in the room, how do we, I guess if I could rephrase what she said, re-emphasize that today. How do we get back to that idea so that when people take an oath as a legislator, for instance, or as a judge, that they again take that oath very seriously and they um, are, are true to that oath? And Because if you think about it, if you get elected to the legislature, for instance, most of what you do is not in the public eye. Most votes are not record votes. Most deals, if you will, are made behind the scenes. Most of the activity happens in committee. All that stuff's going on behind the scenes. That's why the founders were so big on the idea that you've got to vote for honest people. You've got to vote for people of integrity that you can trust because you're not going to be able to hold them accountable in everything that they do. Now, yes, you get that voting record that's on the, that where they do keep the voting record. You can hold them accountable in that way, but it's limited. And so honesty and integrity was a big deal. So if you elect people that are honest and have integrity, then that oath is going to be very important to them. When they take that oath, they're going to want to uphold the Constitution. They're going to want to uphold that oath. And I think the answer to the question is the way you get those running for office to take it seriously when they win is for we the people to demand it of them. We're out of time for today, folks. That was part two in a four-part series this week where we are sharing section six out of Constitution Alive with David Barton and Rick Green. That's our quick start guide to the Constitution. That's our 12-hour program where we walk you through the entire Constitution, every article, every amendment, and we give you the original intent. Half of our time spent in Philadelphia in Independence Hall where the Constitution was framed. The other half of our time is spent in the Wall Builders Library, where David takes things off the shelves and, and, and shares with you those original documents in that amazing library. And we talk about what the Founding Fathers originally intended with the Constitution, each and every clause. And then we talk about how to restore it, what we can do to restore our constitutional republic. This week, we're sharing with you the section on the presidency. Today was part two out of four parts. Tomorrow, we will pick up right where we left off today. If for some reason you missed part one yesterday, you can get it right now at wallbuilderslive.com in the archive section. Same for today. Be sure and share those links with your friends and family. And uh, we'll pick up tomorrow, and then we'll get the conclusion the following day. Thank you for listening today to Wallbuilders Live with David Barton and Rick Green. We stand undivided forever.